Heavenly Father, we come before you again and just, just to sit at your feet right now, Lord, and, and to hear from you. Hear what it is that you want to show us through our passage this morning. Lord, you want to know you and understand you more and so that these words will permeate into our hearts and it will just grow in our walks with you so it will grow more into the image of Jesus Christ. Give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see what you want to show us this morning, Lord. May all distractions fall to the wayside. And just hear you, Lord. Listen and just listen to you. Use me to speak your word, Lord. And may I just honor you with everything that is about to be said. Praise you and we honor you right now. Fill this room in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, in case you didn't know, um, we've made it to the midway point of Mark's gospel. Um, Mark chapter 8 marks that midway point. And as you can see, um, things as I mentioned when I first introduced this book, things are moving rather quickly. I mean, this book, there's a lot of immediately's, there's a lot of um, then after, you know, after that, he did this and he did that. So it's a quick moving book. Um, and we're already halfway into this gospel. Um, and in the three and a half months since we started meeting here, we've already seen and read about many of the extraordinary things Jesus has done and said. I have no doubt that Jesus' Jesus' closest companions have developed a deep love, passion, and dedication to their Lord. And all that's good. All that's fine and dandy. There's nothing wrong with that. However, there was something missing. There was something that Jesus knew that, that was missing, you know, passion, love, dedication to something, to a cause, to a person is good. You know, we see that um, within the people, you know, amongst the people of the church, you know, they have a dedication to serve, they have a passion to, to be there, they have a passion to learn, and they have a love for the church. And that could be true also for many other things, whether it, it's work, whether it's um, school, um, but there was one, again, there's, there was one thing that Jesus saw amongst his disciples that was missing. In our passage this morning, we're going to see what Jesus does and says to his disciples to address this missing element. It was a missing element of faith that they were still lacking. And he does this by displaying his faithfulness through familiar circumstances. He also does this by informing them what they ought to be careful about. He also reminds them about his faithfulness. And he also does this by allowing them to put all this information they know and they've seen and they've, they've heard to put it together to make a reasonable conclusion. What I believe Jesus wants to teach, not just to his disciples, but to us as well, is that knowledge is just an important, is just an important ingredient to our faith as love, passion, obedience, and dedication. 
if you're consciously aware, if you're, con if you're not consciously aware of why you believe what you believe, then all you, then all you are is a blindfolded fool guided by the feelings and or guided by others who are just as blind. And let me repeat that. If you're not consciously aware of why you believe what you believe, then all you are is a blindfolded fool guided by feelings and or others that are just as blind. So again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin in chapter, in verse 1. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord God, Lord, the Word of God says. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He summoned the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to fill these people? How many loaves do you have, he asked them. Seven, they said. Then he commanded the crowd to sit down in the crowd, to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke the loaves, and kept on giving them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served the loaves to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and when they had blessed them, when he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were filled. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 men were there. He dismissed them. Have you guys ever experienced, or you guys know what deja vu is? Have you guys ever experienced that feeling? It's that feeling you get when you're doing something, when you're in the middle of doing something or something's going on, and it seems like you've done it exactly the same way some other time. Like, it, it almost seems like you've been there, done that, and, and the timing is almost identical uh, the way you know, you, you're performing that or the way you're doing that. That, that thing, it's, it, it almost, again, it's, just, it's eerily identical to some other time you might, have, you might have done it or you think you've done it before. Now, I usually get that feeling during the weirdest times. I usually get it when I'm driving or when I'm coming out of the house um, or when I'm coming home from work or even there are even times I'm at work and um, in the middle of the night and I'm just sitting there and I know it. it there's a lot of nights I'm just sitting there doing nothing, but it's just, it seems like I've, I've I don't know, been there and done that. I, I, like, and, and I know that, again, every moment, every second is different. No, nothing is ever the same. Um, well, in this, it, well, if the story sounds familiar, try to imagine the deja vu the disciples were probably feeling as this was going on. Back in chapter 6, there was almost an identical story. The main differences being the amount of people that were being served and the leftovers the disciples picked up. However, there was a, there's a, a couple important factors in the story that I want to point out. The first one is found in verse 2. Let me read that, to you. Let me read that verse to you real quick. In verse 2 it says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. For three whole days, this crowd that was there with Jesus was intently listening to every single word that he was teaching, that he was speaking. They hung on every single sentence, every single illustration, every single word that was coming from Jesus. That's how great of a teacher he was. That's how, that's how he was able to draw people's attention. He just had a way of doing that. 
And I think it wasn't, it wasn't just his personality. I don't think it was the way he spoke, but I think it was, again, just the Spirit of God that was in him that was drawing these people in. These people were hungry and they wanted to, they were hearing Jesus and they were hearing truth. They were hearing things that they've never heard before. And it really captivated them. And again, it captivated so, so much that for three whole days, they were there. They stayed with him, learned from him, and received his ministry. And seeing this, it, it deeply moved him. It deeply moved Jesus to where he had compassion on them for their physical well-being. Again, he's teaching them for three whole days, and he's, saying, and he's seeing, oh, man, these people are hungry. These, if I send them away to go home and eat, they're going to collapse on the way. And, but it was just a feeling of, of, of compassion towards them. And again, this is the first time that we see this compassion of Jesus. But rather than solving that problem, rather than solving the issue that's at hand right away, he presents this dilemma to his disciples by, by essentially asking them, what do we do? What are we going to do? We can almost imagine, as we're reading this again from, uh, from an outward perspective, Jesus sitting there on the edge of his seat, waiting for at least one of his disciples to say, Jesus, don't, don't you remember what you did that last time? Don't you remember that one time that you fed those 5,000 people? And again, uh, just, that was just men. 5,000 people was just men. That was not, wasn't counting the, the, the women and children that were there. So he was there sitting at the edge of his seat, waiting for one of his disciples, one of the 12 disciples, just to say, don't you remember? We know you can do the same thing. Just come on, hook us up. I mean, I know, just do the same thing. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. He was hoping they'd regard his past faithfulness as a promise to meet their present need. And again, unfortunately, they failed to give Jesus the response he hoped for because they were either so mentally preoccupied trying to solve the problem that was presented before them that they completely forgot about what happened that last time. Or they may have believed that Jesus couldn't replicate that miracle to these people. Which leads to my next point. And it's found in, in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. The second important factor I want to point out is there, that response that we see in that verse. Now, I'm going to bring up my, my little map here. Last week, we read that he entered the region of the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis area was this area pretty much here. Um, this region was east of the Sea of Galilee and a compromised of ten cities, thus the name Decapolis. The people in this, in this region, in this area, pretty much had their own government, had adopted the Greek culture, and willingly lived under Roman authority, thus making them primarily Gentiles. And again, I covered that when I was talking about the, the lady who, who uh, the Gentile lady, woman that had her daughter, came before Jesus because her daughter was demon-possessed. And the divide that was between the Jews and the Gentiles. So again, we, you know, a lot of scholars believe that, you know, um, that it was the Decapolis region, but here in this particular instance was along the coast here, along this area. Now, if this was the case, that he was ministering to a bunch of Gentiles, it would probably explain why, they, why these disciples, why they would, ex, 
question Jesus. Lord, how are you going to feed these people, these Gentiles? We get the fact that you fed our people. We get the fact that you fed the Jews. But not these guys. These, these, these are Gentiles. How are you going to just, you know, how are you going to feed them? However, their mistake was their narrow, narrow view of Jesus. Even after seeing all that he did for that Gentile woman who had a demon-possessed child, they weren't able to see that Jesus, they weren't able to see Jesus as a savior of not just the Jews, but of the entire world as well. Now, as Christians, if we're not careful, we can make the same mistake of having that same narrow view of Jesus. You know, we sometimes get caught up in these mindsets of saying, Jesus, I see you doing, I see you, yeah, doing miracles and and working among your people and and bringing them in and, you know, we're, we're Americans and we're, you know, we're heterosexual and we're, you know, we've got our stuff, to, we got our jobs and we're not on drugs and, and we can, yeah, you know, do miracles and work among your people. We can see you do that, but not those guys. Not those Muslims that are over there. Not those Hindus that are over there. Not those homosexuals that are, you know, on the other side of town. Not those transvestites. I mean, no way. You, you can't work among those people. You're not, not, you can't do nothing among those people. Not those Democrats. Not those Republicans. You know, you can't. No way. You can't work with them. You can't work in them. You can't do nothing with them. It's that mindset again of just thinking that our faith is an inclusive faith and that, that it's not open to everybody. That Jesus died on the cross for every single person in this earth. Every single person has an opportunity to come to know Jesus. We must never forget that Jesus is the appropriation, is the appropriation, propitiation, I'm sorry, for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those in the entire world. And it says that in 1 John 2 2. Jesus provides, serves, loved, and died for every single person on this earth and doesn't want any to perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is just not our Savior, but also the Savior of the world. He can work a miracle amongst, these, this, amongst the Muslims, amongst the homosexuals, amongst whatever you know, political party, so that people will recognize who God is and give him the glory. Because when Jesus, when God reveals himself in, the, in, in that powerful way, there's no denying that it's God. It's not the God of the Muslims. It's not the God of the Hindus. It's not, you know, it's not coincidence. It's not, um, it's, God will make it clear that it's him. And he may not be doing it for an entire group. He just may be doing it for one individual so that they may see that it's God and give him the ultimate glory. Now, I love what Jesus does next. Rather than be rebuking his disciples for their lack of understanding, he shows them by doing the very thing they didn't expect. Jesus feeds these 4,000 people. And again, this isn't including men and women in almost the same way, in almost the identical manner that he fed the 5,000 people in Mark chapter 6. He has them um, sit in groups down on the ground 
he takes these loaves, gave thanks, and then just proceeds to break this bread. Break these bread into pieces. And I mentioned that when I covered it, that you know how much energy and strength it takes to just constantly do that for, again, just more than 4,000 people. But not only do you do that with the bread, but then we see that he also, there was a few small fish, and when he had blessed the fish, he also broke those into pieces. Excuse me. He also broke those into pieces and started, you know, and gave them to his disciples to start distributing them. So, again, imagine all the work, all the energy. And, uh, and this was the heart of Jesus, just serve. He had this, he had, again, the compassion, this compassion that he had wasn't going to stop him from serving all these people that were, that were hungry. And again, he handed this stuff. He didn't go out and serve himself. He handed this, um, the bread and the fish to his disciples to, to, to distribute out. And that's what he does with us as well. As, as, his, as his followers, he'll distribute things to you. He'll give you things to distribute out to others. He has a gift for each and every single one of you. And he wants you to use that gift to bless others, to just go out and distribute it to others. I know my calling, and I know what he's, what he's gifted me with. And that's what I desire to do, is just go out and distribute it. Go out and just share what I've learned, what I've discovered, and just share it with all of you. So as you draw near to God, as you draw near and you understand more about Jesus, He will begin to reveal to you what He's called you specifically to do. Now, and now I'm not talking about a, a physical skill that, you know, if you have a skill of running and you know playing baseball, that's all great and dandy. I'm talking about, you know, a, a spiritual gift, something that He's gifted you personally with. And what he, what he wants you to do is just to go out there and, and share it. Share it with others. Distribute it. Now again, this, this leads me to our first point here is that in order, in order to give you a better understanding of who he is, God may make a public display of his faithfulness to you by using familiar circumstances. You see, God in His infinite and unsearchable ways will use unimaginable ways to clearly and plainly show you things about Himself that will help you to know Him more, but to know Him more intimately. Let me, let me, let me repeat that. God in His infinite and unsearchable ways will use unimaginable methods, unimaginable ways to clearly and plainly show you things about himself that will help you to know him more intimately. It's important, therefore, that you keep your eyes open. That as you go out there in the world, as you go out there in your schools, in your jobs, amongst your friends, just as you go out there in the world, that you keep your eyes open so that when you do see his power at work, you may give him the praise and the glory that he deserves. I don't know uh, how that's, you know, if that's ever happened to you, but I can tell you from my personal experiences that I've seen God work in a powerful way. And I've seen him move in a powerful way. And there's no explaining it any other way but God, you know, God doing it, God's power. And what that does within me is like, it, it, I can't help but to praise God and glorify God and, and, and thank Him for His goodness. 
keep your eyes open, recognize, see those things that He wants to reveal to you. And the only way, again, I, I really believe that the, the best way to see these things, to, keep, to have your eyes open and to recognize when His power is at work, is when you're near to Him and when you're in tune with Him, when your heart and His spirit, your, his, your spirit and His spirit are just intertwined and they're connected. It's that love that binds you, that keeps you connected. And, and when, that, when you have that, you can see, you'll be able to see things that most other people will just, oh, it's nothing. You can, you can tell, don't, don't you see what's happening? Don't you see what's going on there? And again, your eyes are open, but maybe theirs aren't. So keep your eyes open. See, see what's going on. See what's happening. Let's uh, move on in our, in our passage this morning and as we continue in, in verse 11. Mark chapter 8, verse 11 says, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, demanding him of a sign from heaven to test him. But sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? I assure you, no sign will be given to this generation. He then left them, got on, the boat, got on board the boat again, and went to the other side. They had forgotten to take bread and only had one loaf with them on, in the boat. Then he commanded them, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have enough, they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing what you do not, that you do not have any bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five lo loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? So now we see Jesus leaving the Decapolis area by boat and travels to the district of Dalmanutha. Del, 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 Del and again, our map here. So again, the Decapolis area um, is here. So he gets on a boat and travels back to this area here. Now, the region here, the, it talks about... Um, the district of Dalmanutha. Scholars believe that this is the area here. This, um, the Magadan is maybe possibly the city of Magadan. Um, but this is the, the district that we're talking about here, Dalmanutha. So he leaves there, tra now travels up there. And what I, what I see is just that, that right now, at this particular moment um, in his ministry, he's just pretty much concentrating on this whole regional area here. He hasn't really gone down south yet towards Jerusalem. Um, he's just concentrating his, most of his ministry is going on here around the Sea of Galilee. So as you can see again, um, this is the, pretty much the area that we're talking about here. Once, once he gets there, he encounters some Pharisees that wanted nothing more than to argue with him and to test him by essentially just pushing him to prove something to them, to test him by just saying, prove yourself, show us who you are. 
What are you all, like, what's, what's up? What's up with you? Like, prove to, show us what you can do. All they wanted to do was just argue with him. You see, for some of these, even for some of these Pharisees, it wasn't enough for them to witness Jesus heal people and drive out demons from people. They were demanding something more spectacular. They wanted to see something, something that was totally going to blow their mind. They wanted, I, I imagine that they wanted to see Jesus call fire from heaven, just like Elijah did in 1 Kings chapter 18. In their minds, you know what, just, you, you, you say you're the son of God, you say you, you're this person, you say you're, you know, sh- or you say you're a prophet, you know, show us. They were antagonizing. They were pushing him. They were saying, you know, prove yourself to us. You know, as if what he did for these people, the healings that, you know, that he did, that they witnessed him do, wasn't enough. They wa- again, they wanted to see something more spectacular. And sadly, even today, there are people that make the same kind of, same kind of demands from God, they make the same kind of demands from Christians. If your God says who He says He is, or if your God is truly God, then have Him, you know, bring fire from heaven, or have Him do this, or have Him do that, and, you know, it, it's, it's sad. You know, I've, I've heard those arguments. And to be honest with you, before I came to the Lord, I would be the same way. I was, Lord, if, if prove yourself to me by doing this, giving me this, or giving me that, As, as a, as a, I remember as a young teenager, I used to, I used to pray that God would, I would believe in God if He gave me a beautiful girlfriend. And I'm telling you when I, you know, said this, but I, you know, I used to, I used to pray, Lord, I, I do, I pray for. Uh, a girlfriend that has blonde hair and blue, blue eyes, blonde hair and blue eyes. And for the longest time, it didn't happen. And I, was, I would have, you know, girlfriends here and there, and that's, that's fine. But I, it, I didn't get that. And, and, yeah, there were times I was angry. I was like, Lord, this is what I want. Prove yourself. If you are who you say you are, then, you know. Um, little did I know that, you know, some years later, at the age of 22, I was going to marry a beautiful woman, that he was going to bless me with a beautiful woman that had blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, he did. He answered me, you know, and it, at the time, again, I was making these demands of God, and I think sometimes we do the same thing, you know, and, or we've done the same thing in, our, in the past. But these people, again, who make these demands, if they really understood who it was they were making demands from, they would quick, quickly realize the futility of making such demands. Their problem is that, the problem isn't that they don't understand The problem is that they don't understand because, because they have no concept. They have no concept of who God really is. How are you going to make demands from the creator of the universe? How are you going to make demands from the God who just made every single one of us, that cr- makes every single thing happen? that is in control of everything, that in a moment's notice can just say, you know what, I'm, that's it. Your, you know, your days are numbered and, and you've had your opportunity. How can you make demands? How can anyone make demands from a God like that? Again, it's not that it's, it's, it's they, the, that they don't understand. They don't get it. They don't, it hasn't, they haven't processed it in their head 
that God is greater and bigger than anything they can imagine, anything they can think of. You can't make demands from an omnipotent, omniscient God. Again, the problem was that they don't, they didn't understand because they had no concept of who God really is. And this is, you know, had the had the Pharisees recognized and seen with the evidence they already had who they were dealing with, who they were talking to, had they seen that Jesus was really the Messiah, they wouldn't have made those demands. But because of their own egos, because of their own hypocrisy, because of their own wanting to keep their positions and didn't, um, and, and saw Jesus in a warped view, they, they couldn't, they just weren't able to grasp it. You see, knowing about Jesus is completely different than knowing Jesus Christ. You can read this entire book. You can read all the Gospels, and I, I mentioned it before, that you can memorize them and know every single word that he spoke. And you can study him in the university. You can study him in all the books that were ever written about him. And you can know about him. But knowing him personally and knowing him intimately is way different than knowing about him. And as I mentioned, this was the exact problem with the Pharisees. They had in their mind who the Messiah was going to be. They knew about the Messiah. They studied about the Messiah. But they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know that who they were standing in front of was the Messiah. However, rather than giving them what they wanted, calling fire down from heaven and making them barbecue like Elijah did to the false prophets in 1 Kings. We're told that Jesus sighed deeply. He just gave a deep sigh. He sighed deeply in his spirit. And as you can see, he essentially said, no, I won't. Not to you. And that just, that gives me chills. Imagine being told by Jesus, no, I won't. Not to you. Now about this sigh of Jesus, one commentator wrote, the sigh physical its cause spiritual, a sense of irreconcilable enmity, invincible unbelief, and coming doom. See, it was a sigh of distress. It was like, ugh. Oh. Oh. It was just, the heart was broken for these people. See, Jesus was distressed because these men, these men were supposed to be the spiritual guides of God's people. And they had no idea who stood before them. They were supposed to be those guides. They were supposed to be those teachers that were supposed to guide them and, 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 and to God and to teach them about God. They were so blinded by their own ambitions, by their own views, their own oral laws, traditions. 
that they failed to see, again, who was this still before them. And I think he was also distressed because they didn't understand that signs do not produce faith. It only produces cravings for more signs. See, he wasn't going to stop them. The, they already had a strong unbelief in their heart. They already had this antagonistic view of Jesus and their hearts were hardened. So even if he did call fire from heaven, he knew that wasn't going to be enough. He knew they were just going to be wanting, they're going to they're want more and more and more signs. It's not the signs that bring people to faith. It's not that at all. Romans 10.17 tells us, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's how someone receives faith. That's how someone comes to know Jesus, is by hearing and understanding and knowing, you know what, this is truth. This is, you know, signs are just... A supplement. It's, it's, all it is is just uh, a side note. It, it, it just gives them, you know, gives people, yeah, okay, this, it's true. But it's listening and hearing the Word of God that permeates and, and, inst- and gets instilled into someone's heart. That they come to believe and they come to understand and know who Jesus is. And this leads me to another way we can allow God to improve our understanding of who He is. You see, if we desire to have a more knowledgeable knowledgeable understanding of who He is, we ought to allow God to give us discernment by informing us what is good, what is bad, what is right, and what is wrong. He does this to His disciples by using His experiences with with these Pharisees, their lack of preparation, and a single loaf of bread. In verses 13 to 15, a problem arose when the disciples realized that they had forgotten to take extra provisions. They had forgotten to take extra bread on this boat ride, on this voyage of theirs, and only had one loaf of bread. They were so quick to leave, they just, they you know, or it was so absent-minded, I don't know what it was, but, you know, you would think they had seven large baskets full of bread, and somehow they got into this boat with only one loaf of bread. It's like, what? What happened? You know? As they ponder this problem, as they ponder this in their head, as they're sitting there looking at this, you know, single loaf of bread, Okay, what are we going to do? What, what happened? Out of nowhere, almost out of nowhere, Jesus commands them, Watch out! Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Well, according to their reaction in the following verse, they assumed that Jesus was trying to use their immediate problem to teach them something. However, in all reality, Jesus' concern, Jesus' words had nothing to do with bread. Now, I'm not a baker. I had to look at this information and and how it was done in the ancient ancient world. But leavened bread, when someone leavens bread, basically it's risen bread, bread that rises. You either have unleavened bread, which is just flat bread, with no, with no yeast in it, and that's what makes it flat. Or you have leavened bread, or you have leavened bread that that's that rises. That's the yeast is what makes it. The yeast in the flour is what makes it what makes it rise. The unleavened bread is just it's, it's again just flat bread. Now what they would do is it, w- their bread they would um, leaven their bread using a little pinch of dough with the yeast from an old lump and use it to make a new lump of dough with it. So they would take just a pinch 
of this dough that had yeast in it and put it into a new lump. And then they, when they would bake it, it would cause, again, this new dough to, this new batch to rise, to puff up. Jesus was using yeast as an illustration of the work of sin and pride. The presence of a little, the presence of a little can corrupt a large amount. Jesus was actually using this illustration to warn his disciples about the sin of the Pharisees and Herod and their domineering power and authority. See, the Pharisees were known for their hypocrisy and their spiritual power and authority, the abuse of that spiritual power and authority. King Herod, the political leader of that time, represented a worldly group with an intense interest in political power and authority. And he was warning them about, about the yeast of these Pharisees, the yeast of King Herod, telling them, hey, watch out. Watch out for these things. As you get to know me, as, as you understand more, beware of that stuff. Beware of that domineering power and authority, whether it's religiously or politically. Now, as I look in our world today, it doesn't, look, it doesn't take long for me to see many things that could be considered the yeast of today. This yeast can start off small and innocently, but grow to impact not just the individual believer, but the church as well. That's why it's so important that as a Christian, you allow God to give you the discernment to understand what is yeast, what is the yeast in your life in order to remove it before it begins to negatively impact you and those around you. As you begin to surrender your life to Jesus, as you begin to surrender these things, these, you know, whatever it is you're holding on to, to Jesus, and as you draw nearer to Him, He will give you the wisdom you need to stay away from dangerous and toxic influences. He will show you. He will teach you. He will reveal these things to you. All those things that are just, you know, bad for you, He will show them to you. And, and a great way, and one of the biggest ways He shows them to you is through His Word and through prayer. Now, as I mentioned, it appears from verse 16 that the lesson Jesus was trying to teach them went completely over their heads. So as Jesus becomes aware that they, were, that they were completely missing his point, he tries another approach to help them understand. And it's here in verses 17 and 20 through 20 where we see the next method Jesus uses, or rather God uses, to grow our knowledge of him in order to help us come to a more knowledgeable understanding of who He is, He will remind us of His faithfulness. Jesus begins to do this with His disciples by first asking them a question that's meant to show them that their thoughts were not in line with Jesus' words. Why are you guys talking about not having any bread? Why are you guys talking about that? Why are you guys talking about not having any bread? He then asks them a series of don't you remember questions. He says, don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes and not see and do not have ears and not hear? Do you have ears? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus makes it clear that there's a direct correlation between hardening of the heart and a failing memory. In other words, and this is a good, a good way to, to really figure out a good indication of where your heart is. A good indication of where your heart is may be, 
may be how well you remember all those times God came through for you. If you can remember clearly all those times God came through for you specifically and helped you out and remember how you felt and how, how glorious it was and how just thankful you were, you know your heart is there. But when you begin to forget how far you've come and how he's and what he's done in your life and you take all those things for granted and you're just oh yeah that was my past and I and 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 maybe you should start examining it's very easy to do that forget forget what God has done for you what God has done in your life and then we're you know again we our heart begins to harden. So he gets, so um, Jesus then reminds them of the time he provided 5,000 for 5,000 people and asks them, and then asks them how much they collected afterwards. And their answer tells us that he didn't forget. Twelve, he told them. So he then goes a step further and reminds them of how he again provided for the crowd of 4,000 and asks them again how many large baskets they collected afterwards. And again, they, rem- they remember by answering correctly, seven, they said. The manner in which Jesus confronted his disciples wasn't meant to condemn them. Rather, he confronted them for their lack of understanding. And from our perspective, we know that they could have done better. They could have done better than this. And probably understood more if they would have applied themselves more. What I believe he's also, was also doing is bringing their hearts and minds back to where they ought to be to prepare them for the next eight chapters that we're going to see in Mark's gospel. He wants to bring these back, these thoughts, these memories. He wants them to come back in line with, with his heart, with the heart of Jesus. Now there might come a time when your heart and mind may begin to wander away from its proper alignment with God. As you lie in your bed pondering about the problems you face, God may try to get your attention in a similar way, reminding you of how faithful he was to get you through whatever problem you were facing at that particular moment. You see, when God reminds you of how faithful he's been to you, and you come back to that place of complete dependence on on him, it's then when you develop a deeper understanding of him. When God again reminds you, I'll say that again, when God reminds you of how faithful He's been to you and you come back to that place of complete dependence on Him, it's then that you develop a deeper understanding of Him. And finally, with the last question Jesus asked the disciples in verse 21, He allows them to mentally examine the evidence in order to come to a reasonable conclusion. Jesus said to them, Don't you understand? In other words, think about everything I've done and said. Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Think about everything that I'm talking to you about. You know, everything that we've done so far. Don't you get it? God. And what he does in order to give you a more knowledgeable understanding of who he is, he may challenge you to examine the evidence, the past evidence, the present evidence of his faithfulness in order for you to come to a reasonable conclusion, in order for you to come to a correct conclusion about who he is. You see, God wants to use your brain he wants you to use your cognitive skills, your, your mind, the brain, the mind that he gave to you to figure out for yourself who he is. 
He doesn't want you to be some mindless marionette that someone or something else controls by the strings of religious legalism and worldly ambitions. He doesn't want you to be controlled by, by these religious figures, these, you know, um, these people that are trying to take from you and, uh, and, and uh, abuse you financially and, and drain you spiritually. He doesn't want that from you. He doesn't want you to be controlled, you know, by these political figures and these worldly figures, your worldly ambitions. When he saves you, when you come to know him personally, when you begin to open your eyes, and when you, in your heart, when you begin to believe and understand who he really is, he cuts those strings. He cuts those strings and say, you know what? Now it's, I'm not here to control you. I'm not here to, 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 to. I want you to make these choices. I want you to figure, I want you to understand who I am. That's what love is. That's what, I'm not going to force my kids. I'm not going to force my wife to love me. I'm not going to try to control their lives in order to love me. I want them to figure that out for themselves. I think as parents, I think all of us do. You know, I mean, we can try and force, but you know, doesn't mean later on they're gonna they're gonna do it. You know, it's just again, you just you hope that with their faithfulness, with your faithfulness, they would just come to understand how much you you love them. And I think this is what Jesus does, and this is what Jesus did on that cross. And that's, my, that's what I want to challenge with you today. I want to challenge you with today. I want you to use your own mind to examine for yourself how God has been faithful to you even when you haven't reciprocated that faithfulness back to Him. Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross to cut those strings that have controlled you up to this point and hung on that cross to free you from the power of sin and death. When God sets your mind and heart free, there's nothing that can tie you back up unless you allow it to. Unless you purposely say, you know what, I'm going I'm to choose to be tied up again. Our passage this morning shows us how important it is to know Jesus Christ rather than, to, rather than knowing about Him. Understand Him. Know Him. Don't just know about him. And we also saw how our knowledge and understanding is an important ingredient to our faith as love, as much as love, passion, obedience, and dedication. Knowledge and understanding. Know who Jesus is. Again, it's just as an important ingredient as that love you have, as that passion you have, as that obedience you have and that dedication you have. Let's pray. God, we, we ask that you, again, that you help us examine our hearts, Lord. Show us where we're at and show us about those things that we have ignored and we have forgotten about, Lord, in order to see and understand you more because that's what we want to do. We want to be made and we want to be built and conform more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, change us. Change our hearts. If our hearts are far from you, transform it, Lord. Bring us back to that place. Lord, we ask you just to minister to us just like you did to these 4,000 plus people, Lord. Bring people into our lives that will serve us and will minister to us as well. Let us see you afresh. Let us see you new. And let us, that's, that's what we want to do is just know you more, Lord. Let us remember who you are. Lord, we love you so much. We care about everything that 
that you're doing in our lives, Lord, and, and we just want to follow you more and more every single day. Give us the strength, Lord. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, and let us go out there and be the salt and light, Lord. Use us also to minister to others. Ask, if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, just ask him. Just, it's never too late to just come before him, fall on your knees and ask him and just repent of your sins and ask him to forgive you for your sins. And he is faithful to forgive you. And he will give you, and if you accept him and surrender your life to him, he will give you everlasting life. And you can do that in the quietness of your heart and just in, or, when, or wherever you're at. And watch him and just surrender your life and just see him. Just watch him do amazing things in and through your life and in and through the lives of others. Bless us the rest of this day, Lord. May we just dedicate it to you. May all our conversations, all our, you know, whatever we do be, be glorious and, and may, may we just honor you with what, what everything that we do for today, the rest of today, and just throughout the rest of the week, Lord. Thank you again for loving us and dying for us, bringing, bringing Jesus to die for us. Praise you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.